This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So dealing with a debt problem goes far beyond just the financials. And Blair Manton wants you to know Sands & Associates is the best firm that you can choose at this point. They are BC's largest licensed insolvency trustee firm in the province, focused on debt help services for consumers, help thousands, obviously thousands of people get a, get out of from underneath their debt and really ultimately change their lives with that financial fresh, fresh start. So Blair's got some key messages of reassurance that he and his team want you to know. So do you want to start by telling us a little bit about Sands & Associates for anybody that doesn't know, a little bit about your history even? Yeah, certainly. So it uh, used to be called bankruptcy trustees, but Sands & Associates is a firm of licensed insolvency trustees, and we're the people you should call when you need a plan to deal with your debts. So if you find yourself being stressed about your finances, not sure where to turn, don't know how you're going to be making these payments, or you're making all your payments, but you know you'll be in debt for decades to come, uh, a trustee is the best person you can reach out to to get a plan to get you back to owing nobody anything, to be able to have some financial goals in your future, uh, and to really achieve what you want to achieve on a financial basis rather than spending all of your money you know, on interest charges or things that just reoccur every month and don't get you anywhere. Uh, we were founded in 1990 um, in Sands and Associates. I'm proud to say we've grown to become BC's largest firm of licensed insolvency trustees. And all we do is help people and small businesses deal with tough debt situations. So we're not a firm that does 100 different things to 100 different clients. We're very, very competent, very experienced, um, and very, uh, and we have a great reputation um, in helping people when they find themselves in tough situations. I also like the fact that, that uh, Sands & Associates believes that money problems can happen to anyone at any time. It's, it's really quite astounding to me over the years that we've been talking about this, Blair, that it's for sometimes for folks, it's just one thing that will trigger a whole host of other things. And before you know it, you're in this pit of debt and you can't figure out how to deal with it. And I like the fact that you know that going in. Absolutely, Elaine. You know, we're, we're committed to an approach of genuine care and empathy. So with each of our staff, our, our goal is to treat every client that, that reaches out to us as if they were a close family member going through a very tough time. What sort of empathy and support would that person want to feel? And that's what we aim to provide as much as we can uh, when we're dealing with our clients. And what we really want people to know is that they do have support. There's qualified solutions. Uh, they need to know where to find them. Uh, but there's absolutely light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, there's there's no debt problem that doesn't have a solution. That's what really just gives me so much energy every morning is knowing I'm going to face a bunch of problems on clients in, in different client situations, but I've got the solution to solve those problems because Canadian law is so great. It's very well written. I don't calculate the government a lot, but they did a great job uh, when they wrote their insolvency laws because it really does give somebody a chance to literally turn their life around uh, in a quicker and often less expensive means than, than they thought possible. 
Um, you know, oftentimes what we do as insolvency trustees, you know, part of it is the numbers and it's understanding, well, you know, what can you afford to pay back and here's how the bankruptcy should be administered. Um, but what's really, um, you know, even more interesting and definitely more gratifying on a day-to-day basis is understanding what does it feel like to be in debt. So what's the current situation the clients are facing uh, when they pick up the phone or walk in the door? And it's oftentimes people are at one of the lowest points in their lives. And to be able to help them to suddenly start again, to rebuild that self-worth, um, to get back on track, you know, that could be just such a rewarding thing for myself and for my team here. And in terms of how it feels to be in debt, you know, no surprise to anybody, it doesn't feel good. And when we survey our clients every year, we do a very detailed um, survey over a period of a couple months and release it to the media every year in January. Um, each year, it's very consistent. Over three in five people said the reason they knew they had a debt problem was because overwhelming stress had manifested itself and they just couldn't ignore it anymore. Uh, for two-thirds of people, self-esteem was suffering because of being in debt. Uh, in a similar proportion, their health was suffering. So, um, you know, stress isn't good for anybody at any time. And definitely we're understanding more and more how physically stress can manifest itself to the point of, you know, even even causing death in, in certain people. So uh, definitely dealing with the financial stress can often have really significantly positive physical impacts. Uh, and, you know, finally, as much as one in six people that reached out to us had said they had contemplated thoughts of suicide to deal with their financial situation. Again, for some for a situation where we know there's a solution, we know people just need to reach out to know that as much as many as one in six people just don't realize that uh, and really have some dark days and dark thoughts. It uh, just tells us we need to continue to do as much as we can to get the word out that empathetic and supportive debt solutions do exist. I'd, I'd like to keep talking about that part, Blair, because I think it's really important and is really significant for Sands and Associates in terms of how you and all of the staff in the offices uh, do your business and talk to people and support them and, and help them through this, the um, whatever situation. And I think the number one one that I've heard you say so many times is your your financial problems do not define you. And I think that is so embedded in people that it, that they believe it does. Um, and I think it comes from, you know, our parents and our parents' parents, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that have just sort of instilled that. But, but it's not true, especially in today's um, landscape where, boy, oh, boy, things can change so quickly for folks. Yeah, it's, it's often, you know, it's a sign of a very moral person to want to honor all of your obligations and your commitments. And when you think about it, you borrowed the money, you made a commitment that you were going to pay it back. And it's not comfortable to be in a situation where you can't meet a commitment that you've made. And oftentimes, the more moral and upstanding the person, you know, the harder that they can really take that and it can really cause, you know, a significant hit to their self-esteem and a sense of self-worth. Um, so, so much of our meetings, especially at first, is just helping people really separate that, really understand that, you know, being in debt is a temporary situation. It's not a permanent state. You are not defined by being in debt now. Um, you know, if you're in debt five years from now, well, that, that's a bit of a challenge. You didn't take the steps and that's going to start to define you, but don't let that happen, you know. Um, it's not a reflection of you of your character, you or your character. And quite often, being in debt is often not your fault. So one of my colleagues, uh, her name is Darlene, one of her uh, pieces of advice that she put on her bio, which I thought was great, is she says, financial difficulties are not a reflection of who you are as a person. They're only a symptom of something bigger that you may have no control over. And this really played out in our survey as well. As many as four out of five individuals, when we really drilled down, was, what's, the, what's the issue that caused you to have to file a bankruptcy or a proposal? Four of the five top main causes were illness, injury, or health-related problems not within your control, 
overextension of credit due to cost of living, outpacing income, generally not within your control. You're not con- con- controlling the inflation these days that's happening. Marital or relationship breakdown, oftentimes that can come without warning. And then job-related or job loss. So the vast majority of situations, when I sit down and I, and I, I hear an individual's uh, story of what they've been through and what they've done, sometimes I can't find anything that they could have done different that would lead to a different outcome. And what they need to do is just start to forgive themselves a little bit for some of, you know, okay, maybe they could have tweaked a little thing here or there, but it wouldn't have resulted in a sea change to their situation. Uh, they need to be focused on what they can do now rather than judging themselves for, for their conduct in the past. Yeah, I think really good points, Blair. Um, if we're already describing you or someone you know and you think uh, they could use a hand, uh, get them to give Sands & Associates a call. The, the phone number is 1-800-661-3030. Or if you want to check out their website, please do that. It's sands-trustee.com. Now, I wanted to move on a little bit, Blair, and talk about some of the things that Sands and & Associates and, and your estate managers want people to know when it comes mm-hmm to asking for help. Yeah, absolutely. I think really top on that list is you do deserve to live with dignity. So just because you're in debt doesn't mean that you have to submit yourself to harassment, to being berated, uh, to feeling like a failure. Uh, Being in debt can cause a lot of shame, a lot of self-blame, but everyone is deserving of a financial fresh start. And regardless of of any of your debt situation, you absolutely do deserve to be treated with and to live with dignity and respect. So we try to emphasize that right from the start, uh, that as humans, we've got certain things that, you know, just the base level of dignity and respect is just endemic to us. Um, And we want people to understand as well, you know, life goes on and you can and will move beyond this current challenge. So it can be really, really tough in the moment in the eye of the storm to think out, you know, two, five or 10 years and know that eventually all this shall pass. Um, But absolutely, as I've often said, you know, debt always has a solution. It's not something that's going to persist for your entire life. So you will be able to move forward. Excellent. What are a couple of other ones? I know you've got I've got a few more listed that we want to talk about. Yeah, I think just one uh, last quote that I would say here, it's from my colleague Raj, um, on, on his bio, again, one of his key pieces of advice that he gives is we can't control what happened in the past, but we can help you understand where you're at today so you can move forward to your goals and your debt-free future. So the more that we can get away from really dwelling on all that's happened in the past, all that we could have controlled or not, um, really focus on the future, focus on that plan, get behind it and get enthused about it, um, that's where we're going to have the real transformation, the real change, the turnaround in people's lives. Are are people or most people surprised to learn um, the kinds of things that come with figuring out debt and debt management? Every day. Um, Elena, sometimes it's, I enjoy my job because I feel like I'm giving good news a lot of times that people didn't anticipate. So, you know, a lot of times people feel like they're the only person facing their situation. No one's ever been through it before. And people are quite surprised to learn, um, you know, in 2019, there were almost 140,000 people in Canada across the country um, who worked with a a licensed insolvency trustee to file either a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. So somewhere between 100 and 150,000 people year in, year out in Canada do restructure their debts. And so you're definitely not alone. Um, Quite often people are really surprised to learn um, that credit and debt borrowing and credit ratings, how everything interacts is not how they they typically thought. Uh, And there's a lot of education in our counseling sessions about how credit ratings actually work about how often keeping a perfect credit rating can be at the expense of your overall financial health. So 
So I really enjoy that part of it, of helping people understand, you know, yeah, credit rating is a report card. You don't need to have A pluses at every stage in your life. And sometimes um, the right decision is to take a short-term hit to your credit report, restructure all the debt, and then be in a better position to save money in the future and rebuild the credit over time. So oftentimes people are very surprised to see, okay, we can have a strategy with our credit rating. It doesn't need to just be perfect at every stage. Excellent. And how straightforward are debt solutions these days? And how, you know, how do the processes that people can choose from actually work? I know you've got some good, good statistics on that. Yeah, well, for most people, they're very surprised to know how how actually straightforward and easy it is to file either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. It's still something you don't go into lightly, but for 80% of people, they said if they knew how straightforward it was, they would have acted more quickly. So if you think it's a very difficult, convoluted process, it isn't. Um, And I think for another thing that people are sometimes surprised is when you're dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee, an LIT is not paid by commission, not paid by your creditors at all. So they really don't have a vested interest in you pursuing one option or another. An LIT is just an impartial, um, an officer of the court, essentially, to help you understand what your options are and help you choose the right option to move forward. I'm going to give you the phone number again. It's 1-800-661-3030 to uh, get that first appointment. Sands-trustee.com is the website. On the line with us from Toronto is Doug Hoyes. Uh, he's the co-founder of Hoyes, Michaelos and Associates, one of Canada's largest personal insolvency firms. He's got over 30 years in the business as a chartered accountant and licensed insolvency trustee. He's so great to talk to and interview because he's so knowledgeable and communicates so well. How did I do, Doug? That was excellent. Just the way I wrote it, Elaine. Thanks very much. <laughs> hey, you're welcome. Uh, the topic for this segment is um, are not-for-profit credit counselors really just collection agents and um i know i can just speak from experience and then i'll let you guys go uh i was shocked mm-hmm. i was shocked at what i've learned uh over the time that i've spent with blair doing this show doug so let's get right started um at the beginning and define some of these terms yeah so i i'm so thrilled elaine to have to have doug here and be talking about this topic because i think it's something that folks just don't know we're very much you know we believe a lot of the branding and advertising that we see and i think on today's show we want to kind of delve below that when you see a not-for-profit credit counselor, what are you actually getting? Um, and I think we'll, we'll correct some misconceptions as well. Um, so Doug, I wonder if we can just ask you first, you know, let's define the term. What do we mean when we talk about a not-for-profit credit counselor? Well, I mean, a credit counselor is someone gives, who gives advice about credit, I guess, a counselor. And not-for-profit means at the end of the day, the agency isn't turning a profit. I mean, it's, it, that's, that's all it means. And really, and what I hear is they're kind of doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Well, and, and uh, I'm not going to paint anyone with a broad brush here because I have worked with many not-for-profit credit counselors over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, yeah. and most of them are fantastic people. Lovely. And it, it has been great in my career to be able to, you know, someone comes into my office and what they really need is some help with budgeting, with, uh, you know, how to save money. Uh, you know, very tangible, practical things. And I'm happy to give that advice, but my area of expertise is more on the legal side with consumer proposals, bankruptcy law, all that kind of stuff. And so I am more than happy to refer them to someone who is much more expert than I in that, you know, those basic money management types of things. So I'm actually a very big supporter of not-for-profit credit counseling, provided that's what they're doing. They're meeting with someone in person and giving them practical advice. So I'm a big believer in that. Now, 
uh, I mean, I think what, what you guys are getting at with your question to me is, okay, well, isn't that what they do? And the answer is every single one of us has to make a living, mm-hmm. okay? I do not work for free. My company, Hoys Michaelis, is a corporation. It's a for-profit business. I'm pretty sure Sands & Associates is also a profit-making enterprise. That's There's correct. nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm very open and upfront with my clients. Yes, this is a business you've come into. My fees, what I get paid when I do a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, are regulated by the federal government. So I can't just decide what I'm going to charge you. It is set by the government. I get a certain percentage of what is in the pot. That's how it works. Every licensed insolvency trustee gets paid exactly the same for the exact same file. So let me get that out of the way first. I'm not saying here I'm some, you know, not-for-profit guy myself. No, I'm a business. I, I make no bones about that. How then do I get paid? Well, when you do a proposal, I'm getting a percentage of what's being paid out to the creditors. How does a credit counselor get paid when you go in there and talk to them about budgeting? Well, they might charge you a a, a fee, you know, a certain amount per hour, or perhaps they're getting funding from, you know, the United Way or other, you know, charitable donations. Fantastic. That's great. But that's not where the... Do you, see yep, that mo- do you see that model very often? Because the way we're describing things, I don't think anybody could be opposed to, you know, a community-based organization um, that provides, you know, good counseling at little to no charge. But I don't see that model very often, definitely not in well, Vancouver. That's, that's the problem. And that's mm. the problem. That Unfortunately, that's a very hard model to, to make successful because as a not-for-profit credit counseling agency, you have to pay the rent, you have to pay your staff. How can you do that if the people you're helping don't have any money? So what they have done over you know the years is they have also done other things to generate cash flow, one of them being debt management plans. And so in a debt management plan, they have an arrangement with each of the big banks and credit card companies that if you agree to pay back your debts in full, the big bank will agree to give you a break on the interest, and in return, the credit counseling agency is paid a fee for doing that. So um, they've always called it a fair share contribution or something like that, and often it's in the range of you know, 15 to 20% of the money that goes back to the big bank. So that's how they generate a lot of their funding. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that. You, you're doing a job, you should get paid for it. Um, I think it's key, though, that when you go to a credit counselor, you understand specifically what they're doing. And you should also understand specifically what a licensed insolvency trustee is doing. Who is paying you? How do you get paid? What's your incentive for, for doing what you're doing? And, I mean, you should ask that of every professional you're dealing with. Uh, how, am I, how am I getting paid? Oh, I bought these mutual funds and I didn't have to pay my advisor anything. Yeah, that's because the fees are buried there. And I think that's my main point. The fees are often not completely visible, and as a result, you don't know who you're paying, what you're paying for, and therefore whose side they're on when you're uh, engaging that professional. Now, as a credit counselor, uh, is it a, uh, is it on them to tell you when you ask that question how they are being funded? Yes, but it's on you to ask the question. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I like coming on your show because we can put these questions in people's mind. I have no problem at all when someone sits in my desk and says, sits at my desk and says, "Hey, how are you getting paid? What's in it for you?" Right. I'm, I'm more than happy to answer that question. My concern is that some of these big agencies have made it sound like, well, we're not for profit, you know, we're, we're here for the good of humanity. Oh, by the way, all of our funding comes from the banks. 
or a vast majority of our funding comes from the banks. Okay, well, if the vast majority of your funding comes from the banks, then doesn't that mean you are somewhat beholden to what the banks want you to do? Absolutely. So if, if I'm a... <laughs> yeah. Somewhat. Okay, you know, I'm, I'm couching my words here. I don't want you getting sued You're here, Claire. You're being very diplomatic. Yeah, and, and so if I'm going to run a seminar about how to use credit cards, am I going to stand up there and say to people, you know what, you shouldn't use them? because the interest rate is really high and they're maybe not a great deal for borrowing? Well, no, because my funding is coming from a big bank. I may be a little reluctant to say that. Sure. So I think you have to know how someone is getting paid. Now, people are going to listen to this and say, yeah, okay, Doug Royce, you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth because it's the bank who's paying you too. So, uh, you know, you're, you're criticizing someone but doing the same thing yourself. Well, no. When you no. file a consumer proposal, you're the one writing the checks to me and I'm distributing that money. In a not-for-profit credit counseling agency that's doing a debt management plan, the bank is actually contributing back to them. It is a, it is a different relationship. And again, our fees are set by the government, so there is no bias here. I'm not the one who's determining what I'm getting paid. Okay. And, and Doug, we wanted to talk about how credit counselors might be akin to collection agents. And so let's spend a minute, you know, what's a collection agent? You know, for my simple mind, and obviously being in the industry here, you know, a bank hires a collection agency to get the money back from you to collect on the debt. So what, yeah, what would be your it's definition? Someone who, it's someone who collects debt on behalf of someone else. Mm-hmm. And so simple as that. what's the similarity there between a credit counselor and a collection agent? Well, I mean, in Ontario, and I believe it's the same in British Columbia, a someone doing a debt management plan has to be registered under the Collection Agencies Act or whatever it's called in, in each individual prov- uh, province. So legally, they are collecting debts. They are debt collectors. Now, they're not the same as a collection agency. I mean, let, let's not you know, overstate the case that, uh, you know, the, the guy who's collecting that old cell phone bill and is harassing you 15 times a day and is threatening to garnish your wages, that's not the same as a not-for-profit credit counselor. But they are collecting the money and then forwarding it on to the banks. As opposed to in a consumer proposal where we are making a settlement with the banks and remitting to them the net amount. So in a debt management plan, you're paying back 100 cents on the dollar. There's no negotiating to be done, whereas in a consumer proposal, it's in most cases much less than 100 cents on the dollar. So I think that's where the the distinction lies. And Doug, you mentioned some of the different provincial legislations, and I have to tell you, BC is completely, from my perspective, asleep at the switch here, um, because I was just just flabbergasted when I saw Ontario's consumer protection or consumer registries there, which say, you know, if you want to see if someone's a collection agency, you basically put in the name, there's a registry, and you can figure it out. Um, And any credit counseling firm that you see, even BC-based organizations that operate in Ontario, they're forced to register as collection agents in Ontario. So that was where I first got the thought about this. I'm like, wow, if they're registered as collection agents, isn't that what they're doing. The province of BC has no such requirement. So if you try to figure out who are the collection agents in BC, you you won't find that information easily accessible. So the number of clients that I sit down with when I say, you know, um, the advertising that you've seen for -for not-for-profit credit counselors, just be a little bit careful because of the funding model and the fact that other provinces have caused them to register just based on the conduct of of what they're doing. So I think it's customers having their eyes wide open. I totally, totally agree. And again, you hit the nail on the head here, the funding model. The problem is I think credit counselors perform a very valuable function, and I would love to go back to to the days where they were 
in person, you could actually meet with them face to face, they could help you with your budget, give you all this advice. But the problem is they can't do it because no one's paying for it. And so they have to resort to taking money from the banks that perhaps they would otherwise not like to do. So I would like to see changes at the federal level, where we find a way to fund not-for-profit credit counselors who aren't, you know, collecting for the banks, but who are helping individual people. That's what I would like to see. Um, and I think that would be better for everyone. It would certainly be better for the credit counseling agencies, because I think that's what they want to do. They should specialize in education and helping people. But the problem is it costs money to do that. So, I mean, that would be a whole nother show on, on how that could possibly happen. But I think there are ways that funding could be provided to not-for-profit credit counseling agencies to do credit counseling as opposed to simply being debt collectors. The one thing that I was going to, I wanted to ask is, are there more of each today than there were 10 years ago? I mean, because you are two guys who are in the business who see what's going on on a regular basis. What do you think? What what I see, if I'm understanding your question correctly, is in the old days, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there were a ton of small, locally-based credit counseling agencies. So in every small town in Ontario, in every large town and city, there was a not-for-profit credit counseling agency. I knew the people there. I could send people there for, for counseling. Today, most of those agencies have been absorbed into the three or four big agencies that are almost national in scope. So if you want to talk to a credit counselor, it's much more likely you're going to be talking to someone over the phone, and their primary goal is to help you, but also to fund their operations with a debt management plan. And again, I'm painting everyone with the same brush here. There are still lots of credit counselors who will meet with you in person and provide good advice, but they are becoming much larger in scope. And uh, there's a lot more stuff being done over the phone as opposed to face-to-face because that's the only cost-effective way to do it. Excellent. We've been talking with Doug Hoyes, who's the co-founder of Hoyes Michaelosen Associates uh, in Toronto. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. For information on any of the services that uh, uh, Sands & Associates looks after, check out their website, sands-trustee.com. Having your wages garnished is got to be one of the most stressful and overwhelming feelings that you can have. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine I can't imagine what that would feel like. Um, and the interesting thing about this segment is that there are rights and remedies that maybe you're you haven't thought of yet or mm-hmm. you don't know about and that's what this segment's all about. Yeah, and, and talk about a bolt out of the blue, Elaine. So this is what sends people, you know, running through our doors or picking up the phone, you know, urgent, urgent need to see us because having your wages garnished means that someone is taking your money before it gets to you, uh, meaning that a creditor is sometimes taking 20, 30, 50% sometimes of your wages before it actually hits your bank account. So for today, we're going to go into a good amount of detail, you know, what is the wage garnishment? How can it get started? And then how can you stop it? Exactly. So mm-hmm. let's first, let's do that first then. Uh, what is it and who can, take your money before you get it. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's sometimes called a garnishee or a wage assignment or an attachment. So there's a number of different ways to say it, but a wage garnishment is a legal court order that means that a creditor or somebody that you owe money to is able to collect a debt from you by seizing part of your income on each pay- paycheck. 
Uh, garnishments can be undertaken by any creditor as long as they follow the necessary processes. Um, so it could include an individual that you owe money to. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a big bank or a credit card company, uh, although those are the most common ones are banks, credit card companies, collection agencies. Uh, Canada Revenue Agency is quite often the person to garnish, um, and they've got a bit of a shorter route to go, and we'll talk about that a little bit later here, but they often garnish for things like a taxpayer debt, income taxes, business GST, payroll deduction, um, Canada Student Loans if you're in default. So if you haven't applied you know, interest relief or payment assistance, if you just go silent on your student loans, uh, CRA will get involved and start to take collection activities, which could include a garnishment, and then also things like EI overpayments and penalties. So the CRA umbrella is quite all-encompassing. Any amount owing to the government essentially could be subject to a garnishment. Um, you know, other types of debts are the really high priority types of creditors. So family maintenance and enforcement programs. Now, can I just yes, stop you right there? So is that the old, is that the new term for the old uh, child support payments mm-hmm. or spousal support? Okay, yes. so it's called family maintenance enforcement program. Yeah, exactly. FMEP is the, the acronym that we hear quite often. Um, and yes, they can start a wage garnishment um, as well if you're behind in your maintenance payments. Got it. The way that works, a notice of attachment can be issued uh, by FMEP and they can include, you know, wages, salaries, pensions, disability, work safe benefits, essentially just about any of your sources of income could be subject to an FMEP attachment. Okay, so how does that start? How does a creditor start that for for the layman listening mm-hmm. like me? How, yeah. how do they get to do that? Yeah, for the most part, it doesn't come without warning. Okay, okay. so most creditors need to apply for to court in order to start a wage garnishment. And that takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, they can't simply start taking your money from your wages right away, although there are some exceptions to this, and we'll talk about those. But any matter that goes to court, you know, by the laws of British Columbia, you have to be properly served, which means they have to make a good faith effort to find you. And someone will walk up and say, are you so-and-so and and hand you some documents? That means that you've been served. If they can't find you, they have to show that they tried every way, which way to do so. And then they'll send you something electronically or via mail, and that'll accomplish the same thing. But once you've been served, typically there's a few weeks until the court date, and then it's your responsibility to either show up if you want to contest this proceeding or if you don't show up, well, then it, it'll probably be awarded against you. Okay. And and it's not, and so once that starts, mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of peop, other people have to be involved as well. If I'm working for a company, yeah. they have to know this. Exactly. And people are always so worried when they come in to see me, you know, you're going to tell my boss I was here? I'm like, no, no. Why would I ever do that? Unless if your boss already is involved because your wages are getting garnished, I'm going to have to tell your boss, okay, let's stop that garnishment. Now he's getting, he or she is getting protection with a trustee here. So that's the extent of it. But you're right, Elaine, if it gets to a garnishee, well, then suddenly your HR is involved, your payroll is involved, and they're probably clearly on your side. They want you to be okay, but by law, they have to follow the law and they have to give those wages over before they're paid to you. Yeah, and depending on the size of the company you're working for, too, Mm -hmm. that can can make a difference. Now, this is super interesting because when I was reading this information about what this topic, Mm -hmm. um, I was shocked to read about self-employed people. Mm-hmm. that that can happen to them as well. Yeah, so it can, and that's a different type of a term. Um, there's a thing called a requirement to pay. And if you're self-employed, so I was dealing with a gentleman just a couple weeks ago, very successful contractor, you know, he does work with a number of different large clients um, around the lower mainland here. Um, he had some issues with CRA, and instead of trying to seize his wages, because essentially, you know, that's pretty tough, he's his own HR department and everything like that, right. um, they issue what's called a requirement to pay to each of his clients, which talk about enlarging the problem, 
problem now each of his clients knows that he owes money to CRA and what the requirement to pay says is that any monies that you're supposed to pay to this individual for his good faith lift, labor materials all those things like that by law CRA is entitled to 100% of those proceeds amazing so it essentially chokes the self-employed person off at the source and again it's all to get the person's attention to make them take action to deal with the issue either to pay CRA to work out a payment plan or to come and see a, a trustee here as well exactly so if if somebody is starting that action um, against me yep. what 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 are my what can I do about that yeah so let's talk about kind of the nitty-gritty of how the court action actually happens and then we'll talk about what you can do but before a creditor is able to take your wages they have to get two court orders so the first is a judgment against you called a payment order and that just confirms that you owe the creditor the debt okay. and they're always going to win on this they just come in they say yeah here's the cardholder agreement or whatever you exactly. agree that you incurred the debt unless there's some conflict here but typically there's not right uh, once the creditor has this judgment against you, that's when they can seek a garnishing order, which would require the third party or employer or whoever to make payments to the creditors. Uh, when the garnishing starts, your pay- payroll department will receive the order from the creditor, um, directing them to withhold the funds and send the money into court. And usually that's when most people learn. It's when their HR department received this garnishment and the HR by courtesy, tells the person, by the way, we're going to be, have to be withholding about 30% of your wages. Got it. So now, do I ever get a chance to say, hang on, mm-hmm. as, a, as an individual, can we, you know, just put a, a, a pin in this you do and reconsider absolutely so when we talked about there was those two court hearings um, you know the first one is the payment hearing now I always encourage everybody to show up to court anytime your name is being considered right you want to be there you want to know what's going on if you don't show up to this payment hearing they will win 10 times out of 10 as okay. long as it's a valid debt if you do show up courts are generally pretty reasonable they know how drastic a garnishee can be so you can consider you know what let's try to get the court to hear both sides of the matter and see if the court will make an order detailing some payment terms you know if the court thinks the creditor is being completely unreasonable the court might say okay here's the payment terms they're 25 or 50 dollars a month that's what I believe you're entitled to, creditor. But if you don't show up, you've got no ability to contest those payment terms, and it'll basically just be a rubber stamp. The, the creditor will get the judgment. Okay. And uh, because of the time that we have for this, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, um, how much of a person's income is a creditor allowed to allowed to take? Yeah, really good question. Let's make sure folks know. So in the province of BC, in most cases, up to 30% of your net after payroll deductions income can be garnished. So 30% is pretty significant. Uh, There can be some exceptions to this. So um, 100% of income earned through self-employment, as we talked about through a requirement to pay, that could be seized. And then occasionally government income like CPP, OAS, um, GIS, employment insurance, even social assistance benefits, um, those cannot be garnished sheet except if you've got a really significant debt to CRA or to FMEP. Okay. So for the average person working a job, it's up to 30% of your wages is potentially what's at risk. The other thing that that crossed my mind when I was reading this is I was shocked to know that a creditor can actually increase the amount Mm -hmm. that you owe based on what? Well, if you think about it, so if everything was paid according to plan, the creditor would not have to go through any extra expenses. They wouldn't have to hire lawyers. They wouldn't have to hire process servers to give you documents. They wouldn't have to show up in court. And when they get their payment order, money's got to come from somewhere. And you can imagine it's 
fair, I guess, um, that the creditor be allowed to recoup some of their costs. Now, for the person who's already got a debt they can't pay, seeing, you know, $1,000 or more of extra costs added on to some of these orders can be very demoralizing. Um, But at the end of the day, the creditors do have the right to recoup their costs as part of the payment order. So I'm thinking the only way for me or anyone in this particular situation could... uh, get some help would be to go to see a licensed insolvency trustee. And I'm not just saying that. I mm-hmm. mean, that's really the only way. Yeah, short of convincing the court that, you know, 30% is putting you in real hardship, seeing a trustee is absolutely the most direct way to get these garnishments to stop, to work out a plan that you can afford to restructure the debt. If anyone out there is being garnished, don't suffer. Come in to see a trustee. Odds are we can fix it. And if you want to, if you just want to take a pause and don't don't want to run into the office and make that appointment and all that stuff, go to the website for Sands & Associates at sands-trustee.com. There's loads of good information there, which will help you make that decision and then give them a call. 1-800-661-3030. Get that consultation and to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Cut and consolidate debt without bankruptcy or borrowing. And this is this segment's all about consumer proposals. And if you're going consumer proposal, what the heck is that? This is a perfect segment because we're going to explain in detail what a consumer proposal is. And it's often the ideal debt solution for so many people. So Blair, can you start with the basics? Tell us exactly what is a, a consumer proposal is, because is it true that people still don't know or, or that it's a new concept for them? Well, it's getting better year after year, but absolutely, I often say a consumer proposal is the most powerful debt solution you've probably never heard of, Um, and it really is that. It's so powerful in that it allows you to consolidate all of your debt um, into a single monthly payment amount. It stops all of the interest on your debt, so not another penny of interest is charged in the day that you file a consumer proposal. And what's the most powerful part of it is a proposal doesn't generally require you to pay back all of the debt that you've incurred unless you generally have the means to do so. For the most part, a consumer proposal has a significant reduction of debt. So quite often people are paying back in the range of 20 to 40 cents in the dollar, maybe 30 to 50 cents, something like that, but generally a very significant discount to what the total amount of debt would be. And when you take away all the future interest, you know, suddenly what seems like a very unmanageable situation, um, you know, you don't know how you're ever going to get out of debt is becomes just a single monthly payment that you make over a term of up to five years with the right to pay it off in part or in full at any time. So to give you some examples, and these are real examples we filed in just in the last few weeks here, uh, one client had just under $30,000 of debt. They were making payments of roughly $500 a month, and they were getting nowhere. They were just paying interest for the most part. We did a consumer proposal that instead of $30,000 of debt, we offered $12,000, and it brought their monthly payments down to $200 a month for a term of 60 months. So they were $500 a month on the pay this forever and you'll probably never get out of debt. And we were able to bring it down to $200 a month, $12,000 in total. And if they decide to make extra payments, they'll be done more quickly than the five-year term. Uh, that's just one example. Um, you know, another one that I'm really proud of, and I'm seeing these more and more, unfortunately, is someone had a debt of 21000 but it was, it was with an alternative lender. Now, sometimes we've seen these diff- different payday lenders suddenly start to make larger loans. Um, sometimes there's other uh, outfits that have been around for many years who loan uh, money out at the rate of about 39%, yeah, literally 39% interest, if you can believe it. Uh, their monthly payments were $1,058 per month. 
We did a consumer proposal that resulted in them reducing the debt to just under half, so from 21000 down to 9600 But check this out in the monthly payment, from 1058 down to $160. That was one of the most significant reductions I'd ever seen in a proposal, and it was getting rid of that 39% interest and reducing the debt. That was just a complete life changer for this person who just thought, oh my gosh, 40% interest, how am I ever going to get out from under that? And she wouldn't, probably unless she had done this consumer proposal, uh, but it was just a complete new day for her. Wow. And and did I, um, can you just mention the, the hard numbers, uh, what the what the totals are that you can file or, or use cons, uh, consumer proposal for between what total and what total? What do you have to owe at that point? Of course. Good question. So to do a consumer proposal, the minimum amount of debt is just $1,000. And we don't see many for that low, but often five or 10000 is a good minimum. The maximum is up to $250,000. And that doesn't include your mortgage. So forget about the mortgage. Um, but any of your other debts, if it's up to a total of $250,000, you can restructure it as part of a consumer proposal. It's also possible to file a joint consumer proposal if it's a husband and wife or even just, you know, two people whose finances are relatively the same. They've got some common debts. They can file a joint consumer proposal, in which case the limit is up to $500,000. For the most part, the clients that we see, it's somewhere in the range of forty dollars to $80,000 of typical unsecured debts, credit cards, student loans, payday loans, income taxes, and there's significant reductions possible in that range with the consumer proposal. And you're a big fan of the consumer proposal. I can just tell how you're talking about mm-hmm. it. Oh, it's the reason I became a trustee, Elaine. So um, it was someone in my life that really had a debt problem, and I wasn't able to give them good advice, even though I went to business school, worked at an accounting firm. And it was only by looking into what are the options here, and this consumer proposal could really bring $20,000 of debt down to $120 a month in that situation. It was true, and that from that day forward, I decided to become a trustee, and that's the fact. 15, almost 20 years ago. So I want to share that with others to make them aware of just how powerful this option is. It really can be a life changer. And I know you've got some great, a really good list of all the other sort of debt management options that are within that consumer proposal and and why you're such a big fan of it. Yeah, you know, a a couple of key things um, is, you know, a consumer proposal can be all encompassing. So when you're looking at different things like a credit counselor, maybe working with a private debt repayment agent, they're not going to be able to deal with your whole situation because the government doesn't recognize anything other than a consumer proposal to deal with debts like income taxes or student loans or GST or, uh, you know, various amounts owing to the government or even ICBC debt. So when you're doing a consumer proposal, you're going to settle virtually all of your debts. The only ones that you couldn't settle are things like, you know, child support, spousal support, things that, you know, probably you shouldn't be able to settle anyway. You've got to go to court on those. But generally, other consumer debts are going to be dealt with in the proposal. And what's also really incredible, too, is the protection. So people generally understand if you file for bankruptcy, you know, there's a ceasefire. Nobody can sue you, take you to court, take any wages from you, call you, harass you people don't always realize the consumer proposal is that exact protection. So if you're in a situation, oh my gosh, I've been sued for a debt, I guess all I can do is file for bankruptcy. No, you could file a proposal, get that same protection. So it is just really wonderful that way. It's the best alternative to a bankruptcy. And it's to the point where, you know, 10 years ago, it was probably about a third or a quarter of people that came to see Sands and Associates would choose to file a consumer proposal. They just weren't aware of it. And sometimes the situation had deteriorated so much. Now it's 
two-thirds of people are filing proposals, about one-third's bankruptcies. So as soon as people are aware of this option, they tend to really gravitate towards it. It's a great way to restructure without having to, to file a bankruptcy. I like the idea, too, that it, it seems like it's a bit of a happy medium for folks. Did I? Do you think so? Absolutely. And that, that's what I hear a lot is people feel a whole lot more pride uh, when they've stared down. You know, they could file a bankruptcy. They could pay less. They don't want to do that. They know they can't pay the debt in full. So the happy medium is I made a deal with my creditors. I'm paying back what I can afford. It's more than I would have to afford in the bankruptcy, but I can have some pride in that and saying, you know, I'm doing what I can. I'm making the best possible alternative. So it can be that sweet spot between your creditors want all the money back, which you just can't do. You could choose to file for bankruptcy and they're probably not going to get a whole lot back. But there's a lot of benefit to yourself of being able to avoid that bankruptcy proceeding and of having just the pride of saying, I did what I could. I met my obligations to the extent that I could. And I didn't resort to a bankruptcy if I had any alternative otherwise. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. It's like I did everything I possibly could and I, I feel okay about doing it this way. I'm not, I'm not getting rid of, or, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with it. I'm dealing with it the best, the best way I can. I think that's, I think that's a really important piece of it. Um, and then just closing, we've just got about, uh, a minute or a minute and a half. I know that's not very much time. Can you give us mm-hmm. a bit of a recap on the general advantages of choosing the consumer proposal? Yeah, I think a couple of just extra ones I'll I'll throw in there, too, uh, is just if you're comparing a consumer proposal to, say, debt consolidation loan, they might sound similar. But again, in a proposal, you're paying zero interest and you're you're paying back a reduced amount of the debt, not the full amount. But also with a consumer proposal, there's no credit check. There's no credit score required. You're not actually borrowing money. So everybody can qualify for a proposal. You will not get denied as long as you can show that you've got more debt than you're reasonably able to pay back. Um, and what's also great with a consumer proposal is you're never required to get a co-signer. So sometimes if you're doing a consolidation loan, the bank will say, oh, yeah, we'll loan you the money, but we want someone else to sign on the dotted line. And then suddenly they're responsible for all of your debts as well. It's something you should never do. In a consumer proposal, you would never have to provide a co-signer. It's just you dealing with your situation. Nobody else is at risk. I think that's uh, I think that's a really important piece of it as well. Listen, if you want more information, here's the phone number, 1-800-661-3030 to get a hold of someone from Sands & Associates and make that first appointment. Check out their website as well, sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.